forced out. The president of Planned Parenthood leaves the job after only eight months. We have reaction from lawmakers and analysis from Catherine Hadro of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. Fighting for their faith, the ministerial to advance religious freedom continues in Washington. We speak with Christian pastor Andrew Brunson, who spent two years in a Turkish prison. Justice on trial. We speak with one of the authors of a behind-the-scenes account of the confirmation process for the Supreme Court's Brett Kavanaugh, a Catholic. And the path to sainthood, an inside look at the beatification process for Archbishop Fulton Sheen. On EWTN News Nightly for Wednesday, July 17, 2019. Good evening from Washington, D.C., and thank you for joining us for News from a Catholic Perspective. I'm Wyatt Goolsby, in for Lauren Ashburn. Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion provider, fires its president. Dr. Lena Wynn was only on the job for eight months. She says the Planned Parenthood board got rid of her after a secret meeting. She blames philosophical differences. Correspondent Jason Calvi breaks down the story. Jason? Yes, Wyatt, philosophical differences about the direction and the future of Planned Parenthood. Dr. Wen says she wanted to focus more broadly on health care. She says instead Planned Parenthood wants to focus on abortion. Lena Wen says she joined Planned Parenthood to run a national health care organization and to advocate for the broad range of public health policies that affect our patients' health. But she accuses the board of deciding the priority of Planned Parenthood moving forward is to double down on abortion rights advocacy. Her firing comes after a tumultuous year of debating abortion. Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade. Abortion supporters worry about new justice Brett Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh is an enemy of women's rights. And the legal future of abortion. Abortion is a human right. And states like Alabama passing abortion bans. The motion to table passes. Earlier this year, we questioned when at the Capitol. As a medical doctor, when does life yeah, begin, would you say? Do Dr. Wen? She has a meeting right now. Dr. Wen, please. I have a meeting that I need to get to. Last year's annual report shows they took in $1.6 billion. Why should the government give you another half a billion? Dr. Wen? Dr. Wen, as a medical doctor, when does life begin, would you say, Dr. Wen? Dr. Wen would not answer our questions. And tonight, she'll no longer speak for Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood will soon be losing roughly $60 million a year. Their top lobbyist says they're going to stop receiving federal family planning dollars. That's because the Trump administration is banning those providers from referring or doing abortion. Now, Planned Parenthood is fighting this in court and urging lawmakers here to reverse it. Wyatt? Correspondent Jason Calvi reporting. Thanks, Jason. And Catherine Hadro, host of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly, joins me now with more analysis. Catherine, nice to have you back on the broadcast. Good to be here. What does this ousting of the president say about Planned Parenthood's future, and what message do you think they're trying to send out with this? Why Planned Parenthood is in disarray. I think this is both a messaging and an identity crisis. Well, if we look at the facts, Dr. Wen was hired officially in November, and she focused on health care, not on abortion. She rolled out this national This Is Healthcare campaign, mm -hmm. and she was saying she wanted to add services to Planned Parenthood to care for opiate addiction, mental health services, diabetes, now, eight months later, she's fired. So I think the message Planned Parenthood is sending is they care about abortion, not health care. Well, there's no doubt abortion itself is going to be a major issue in the presidential election in 2020. 
Um, Wynne said that during her interview process, she made it clear, like you said, that she was more interested in the health care aspect rather than the political advocacy. So do you think her being fired after just eight months on the job is a political thing? And if so, is that would that be a smart decision right before the election or just less than a year? I think Planned Parenthood is trying to embrace this role as a political advocate. We are seeing an uptick in pro-life legislation. Mm -hmm. The administration is saying that pro-life issue is a priority for them. And as Jason reported, there's increasing speculation that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. A lot of abortion advocates are angry. And I think Planned Parenthood wants to be that voice that will channel all that anger and frankly, that hysteria. So is this a smart move? Uh, no. I mean, you have a change in leadership in less than in eight months. Um, and we're in the middle of the 2020 campaign season. We've already had the first Democratic debate. The optics on this one are not good. Um, do you think, I guess my question is, how do you think her firing will affect the pro-life movement, what pro-lifers mm. are doing? Because it seems to me that, yes, she's out, but the board will likely appoint someone who will simply do more in terms of the political advocacy. Right. I think you're right that their next president will be another political operative like their previous president, Cecile Richards. Mm -hmm. But I think this is positive for the pro-life movement because, again, it shows that Planned Parenthood is unclear about their mission and they are in disarray. And also, they're abandoning moderates in this country. For anyone who thought Planned Parenthood maybe was a health care clinic, it's obvious that their focus is on abortion. But why, when it comes to the pro-life movement, I really think the focus needs to be on prayer for Dr. Wen. Uh, this was no doubt a jarring experience for her. And just 11 days ago, 11 days ago, she wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post sharing she recently had a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Planned Parenthood knew about this and they still fired her. So now is not the time for the pro-life movement to be mocking her, blaming mm -hmm. her. We need to be praying for Dr. Wen that this was an eye-opening experience into the corruption inside of Planned Parenthood. Such important points. Catherine Hadro, host of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. Thanks for your analysis. Thank you, Wyatt. The Ministerial to Advance Religious Freedom continues at the State Department. The gathering welcomes hundreds of church and government leaders from around the world. Today, participants heard from the son of a man murdered in 2011 in Pakistan. Shahan Tasir's father was a Pakistani governor assassinated by his own bodyguard. He defended Asya Bibi, a Catholic, against charges of blasphemy. Today, Tasir issued a challenge to the ambassador for religious freedom, Sam Brownback. The Prime Minister of Pakistan is visiting Washington on Saturday on a state visit to, to, to meet with the President of the United States. I do hope, Ambassador Brownback, you will seek an audience with him and ask him about the blasphemy laws in Pakistan and ask him about the prisoners of blasphemy who suffer under these laws. Tessier told us it is important for the Pakistani Prime Minister to know there are people in his country who are imprisoned without access to a fair trial. More than a dozen victims of religious persecution have been speaking at the ministerial throughout the day. We're joined by one of those who has suffered for his faith, Pastor Andrew Brunson. He's attending the Ministerial to Advance Religious Freedom at the State Department. Uh, Pastor Brunson, thank you for joining us. You were falsely imprisoned in Turkey for about two years for allegedly spying. Specifically, the government was suspicious of your ministry, which openly preaches the gospel. You have experienced what so many will not. What do you say to people who seemingly take religious freedom for granted? Well. That is an issue. People take it for granted, especially in the West, because we haven't had a lot of religious persecution. But the reality is that throughout history, uh, it's been very unusual to have religious freedom. And even in the world today, Christians are under pressure in many countries around the world. So persecution is actually something very normal for the church throughout history. 
you've been speaking out about what you see as escalating hostility in this country as well towards Christians. What has struck you the most since you returned to the U.S.? I think it's the, uh, you look at the political and media and uh, in academia, the celebrity classes, it just seems like there's an increasing uh, demand that basically Christians should not act as Christians in the public arena, it seems, or make uh, faith claims. Uh, it seems that as long as people are in the church, uh, they can do, they can uh, make truth claims, but if it's outside, then uh, they want them to actually celebrate, uh, approve of things that they actually disagree with. And if they don't, then uh, they are marginalized or silenced. Well, you mentioned the mainstream media and Hollywood celebrities. What do you think is behind all this? I think there's a real uh, issue about uh, truth and uh, everyone's saying my truth, your truth, declaring their own truth, broadcasting their own truth. And that's something uh, that God reserves for himself on, on issues of, of uh, what is truth, who defines truth, who defines identity, issues like that. And especially when we deal with uh, issues of morality and personal holiness. Do you think events like this ministerial will help to bring about change? I don't know. I think that it's something that we have to fight for. Uh, so we need to bring these issues up in public. And uh, so from that point of view, yes, it's very important that this kind of meeting happen. Uh, what will it produce long term? I don't know. But I'm hopeful that as it's talked about more, at least I would like Christians to be more and more aware of what's happening. And I think of uh, something in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You have all these uh, disparate people coming together, a very small group who resist, uh, and they do not fight, be and they're fighting against overwhelming odds, but they don't fight because they think they can win, but because it's the right thing to do. So I think it's very worth doing. Such uh, So many important messages there, and certainly a lot of encouragement there to other Christians around the world. Pastor Andrew Brunson, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, and we wish you the best. Thank you. New Zealand's Minister of Foreign Affairs is in Washington to attend the ministerial. He says the ability to practice faith freely is important in his country. Religious freedom and pluralism are therefore two pillars of the foundations underpinning both the United States and New Zealand style democracy. Winston Peters says he also is in the U.S. to talk trade. He's asking officials here to look at his country with fresh eyes and not be so focused on trading primarily with Europe. President Trump isn't backing down after House Democrats passed a congressional resolution condemning him for racist remarks. The debate stretches from Capitol Hill to the White House, where correspondent Mark Irons reports. Good evening, Mark. Good evening, White. House Democrats have spoken, but the president isn't likely to let this go. And Republican lawmakers still back President Trump after he targeted congresswomen of color, saying they should go back to the places from which they came. President Trump denounced by House Democrats for racist remarks, showing gratitude to his own party. Tweeting late last night, so great to see how unified the Republican Party was on today's vote concerning statements I made about four Democrat congresswomen. Only four House Republican lawmakers voted in rebuke of the president's tweets when he referred to a group of Democratic congresswomen of color, one a citizen since 2000, the other three born in the U.S., by saying... Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? We condemn the hurtful and offensive comments 
that demean immigrants and people of color. Democrats united against the president's words before yesterday's vote. I know racism when I see it. You can spot Georgia Congressman John Lewis in half-century-old photos. As a young man, years before becoming a lawmaker, he fought for civil rights alongside Martin Luther King Jr. In the 50s and during the 60s, segregationists told us to go back. Every single member of this institution, Democratic and Republican, should join us in condemning the president's racist tweets. With that statement, Speaker Pelosi's words broke a House rule, upsetting Republicans. I make a point of order the gentlewoman's words are unparliamentary and risk ready to be taken down. The resolution condemning the president eventually passed, but the partisan bickering caused the presiding House Democrat to walk away. Because we want to just fight. I abandoned the chair. In the Senate, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell held his ground for President Trump. The president's not a racist. We may hear more of the president's own defense of himself tonight at a rally in North Carolina. Combined with renewed attacks on those four congresswomen, he has been critical of past remarks they've made, calling them anti-Semitic, saying they also, he also alleges they hate America. Wyatt? White House correspondent Mark Irons reporting. Thanks, Mark. The Trump administration is objecting to France's plan to tax Facebook, Google, and other U.S. tech giants. Finance officials from the Group of Seven, including Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, shown in the middle, are gathering this week near Paris. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin plans to take a tough line against France and its proposed tax, which lawmakers approved several days ago. It could be signed into law within weeks. Pakistan arrests a terror suspect wanted by the United States. Radical cleric Hasfid Sahid has been implicated in an attack on Mumbai, India. He founded the group responsible for the 2008 strike, which killed 166 people. The arrest comes just days before Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan visits Washington. In Venezuela, opposition leader Juan Guaido welcomes plans by the European Union to impose more sanctions on members of the socialist government. The measure would target officials accused of being involved in torture and other human rights violations. The United Kingdom again delays its plan to restrict websites that host pornography. The measure was set to take effect next Monday. It now will be delayed six months. The proposal mandates pornography websites verify users are over the age of 18. An appeals court in England is hearing a challenge to a buffer zone banning pro-life gatherings and speech near a London abortion clinic. Last year, the town council in Ealing effectively prohibited public prayer and counselors within 330 feet of the clinic. The appeal was brought by a woman who chose not to have an abortion after receiving counseling outside the center. Coming up, remembering the life of former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. And we hear from one of the authors of a new book on the confirmation process for Justice Brett Kavanaugh to the nation's highest court. Welcome back. I'm Wyatt Goolsby, in for Lauren Ashburn. Former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens has died. Stevens served from 1975 until 2010. He voted in favor of abortion and some legal rights for same-sex couples. He also acted to limit the use of the death penalty. Stevens had suffered a stroke Monday at his home. He was 99 years old. 
A new book is giving readers a detailed behind-the-scenes look at the nomination and confirmation process of the Supreme Court's newest justice. Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court follows the journey of Justice Brett Kavanaugh from his selection as the nominee through his politically charged confirmation process. And Carrie Severino joins me now. She's Chief Counsel and Policy Director of the Judicial Crisis Network, which backed Justice Kavanaugh's nomination. Carrie, welcome back. Great to be here. You and the co-author, Molly Hemingway, both had the opportunity to witness all of these detailed events firsthand. Why was it so important to chronicle it in such detail as you do in the book? Yeah, we knew this was one of the most important things to happen to the country last year. It wasn't just, just Brett Kavanaugh on trial. It was justice on trial, the notion of due process, of innocence until proven guilty. We wanted to make sure someone was there to tell the full story of what really went on. I saw what happened as a clerk for Justice Thomas after he was confirmed. There was kind of a campaign of, of reimagining the story, revisionist history that happened afterwards to discredit him on the court. And we thought, if we can do a very thorough job, tell all the facts now, they won't be able to do that to Justice Kavanaugh. So we talked to over 100 people. We talked to the president. We talked to Supreme Court justices, senators, people who knew the Kavanaugh's, people who knew the Blasey's, et cetera, just to try to get the fullest story possible. When you did all of that, what surprised you the most in all of your research? Well, one of the things I loved was getting to know the people involved. You know, you, you, you start talking to people's mm -hmm. friends and get a real full picture of all these interesting characters. I loved hearing the story of the Kavanaugh family. And there's some really moving moments, you know, even what uh, Brett Kavanaugh was reading as a lector the Sunday before he was nominated on a Monday, right before he went to the White House to meet with the president who was going to tell him he'd be nominated. He read a passage from 2 Corinthians, and it was, uh, my, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And at the time, he thought he wasn't going to get the nomination. He kind of mm. saw that as a really significant moment, thinking, okay, I, I have the grace to get through this process. Little did he know, of course what he had ahead of him, and we learned later that that was actually a passage that Justice Thomas had also been praying through during his own confirmation process. So there were so many really interesting parallels we learned about. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, it's interest also interesting you note in the book that the president uh, assured Justice Kavanaugh that his confirmation would be uh, quick and easy because of his credentials. Obviously, as you well know, it didn't turn out that Not way. So, so politically charged, you know, uh, mainstream media covered it. It was made fun of on Saturday Night Live. Um, what do you think that says about sort of the political climate and you know society we live out and live in today? Yeah, it, we we really wanted to tell the background story, also of not just what happened here, but also the, put it in context. And so, if you look at the trend in Supreme Court nominations with Judge Bork who was his nomination blocked, Justice Thomas, who had a very similar situation to Kavanaugh with unsubstantiated allegations being leaked at the last minute. We've seen a pattern of these things getting more and more controversial, and unfortunately, even more so when you have a seat that is up for grabs that will change the composition of the court. So Bork was one where there's a swing vote being replaced by a conservative, with Thomas, a very liberal justice, replaced by a conservative. And what we're concerned about is, right now we saw a swing vote in Kennedy being replaced with Kavanaugh, and it got this crazy. What will happen if a liberal justice retires while Trump is in office and he has the opportunity to nominate yet another nominee? What, what type of process could we see? And we worry that men and women who would be qualified and excellent for this are going to hesitate to put themselves up for public service when they know uh, that they and their, even their families and reputations are going to be dragged through the mud. Okay, we'll be watching to see how all that plays out, if it does in fact happen before the election, of course. Carrie Severino, co-author of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here.
A pro-life group in Colorado is leading a signature drive to place a question about whether to ban late-term abortion on the 2020 ballot. The Coalition for Women and Children must collect 125,000 signatures within six months. The state currently has no laws regulating late-term abortion. Up next, a priest from the Diocese of Peoria, Illinois, tells us about the canonization process for Archbishop Fulton Sheen. And why a choir from London is headed to California and Utah. Welcome back. I'm Wyatt Goolsby in for Lauren Ashburn. A cardinal from Germany is criticizing what he calls false teaching in a working document for October's Synod of Bishops on the Amazon region. Early drafts called the region a source of revelation, but Cardinal Gerhard Mueller says the only sources of revelation are Holy Scripture and tradition. Catholics around the world applauded the news earlier this month that Archbishop Fulton Sheen is set to be beatified. Michael Warsaw, the chairman and CEO of EWTN, said in the National Catholic Register, quote, all of us who seek and find inspiration and formation in Catholic media today owe a debt of gratitude for the path blazed by Archbishop Sheen and continued by Mother Angelica at EWTN. Monsignor Richard Sosman, Vice Postulator for the Canonization for Archbishop Fulton Sheen, joins us from Rome. Monsignor, welcome. As the Vice Postulator, you put together 7,000 pages for the cause of Archbishop Fulton Sheen. What was the process like? Well, it was arduous, of course. You have to conduct the process on the diocesan level before it's sent to the Holy See. So we did that work from 2002 until 2008 when we sent it over uh, to Rome here. You have to uh, have a historical commission that searches all the archives. There was a theological commission that uh, did all the uh, research uh, on whether all of the books, all the videos and everything were uh, um, according to the faith. And then uh, uh, we contacted over 100 eyewitnesses to Nushin, uh, the overwhelming number of positive, a few negative voices, and you try to look for that too. Uh, and uh, um, it was incredible to meet so many good people. You're uh, from Illinois, and you've received the casket of Archbishop Fulton Sheen when it, he was moved from St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York to Peoria, Illinois. I know there were questions about how and if that was going to happen. Do you see the move overall as a positive for Peoria, for that area? Oh, I do see it as a positive for Peoria, and I think positive for the church. Uh, you know, when I presented the cause to uh, the request for transfer so that we could do the cause in Peoria to the cardinal here at the Congregation for Saints, uh, he said, well, why wouldn't New York do the cause? I said, well, they have six or eight causes of canonization. I said, we have only one. I said, everyone in New York a saint, is a saint, and we only have one saint. So he chuckled and then went forward with it. Already, though, people have started to stream to the Cathedral of Peoria, uh, to visit the tomb of Bishop Sheen and to actually touch the tomb, to get very close to it. This was impossible in St. Patrick's, as beautiful and as honorable a place as that is. It was impossible to do that, but now people actually are able to come close to Bishop Sheen and uh, be with him and pray for a while. For 10 years, you worked at the Congregation for the Clergy at the Vatican. How has Archbishop Sheen made an impact on those working at the Vatican? You know, when I came here, my job had finished because we had sent the cause here. And so uh, my job as delegated judge and vice postulate had finished. And so here they appointed me the coordinator of international outreach. So I would buy the books of Fulton Sheen in English, in Spanish, in German, and in uh, French, and give them to those officials in Rome. Uh, and 
the older priest uh, all said, oh, we have such good memories of him. He was such a good inspiration and a leader of the clergy worldwide in the 40s and 50s. And so uh, I received overwhelmingly favorable reaction from, from everybody I spoke to here at the Vatican about Fulton Sheen. Yeah, such an important example uh, for how he lived his life and, of course, devotion to Christ through prayer. Monsignor Richard Sosman, Vice Postulator for the Canonization for Archbishop Fulton Sheen, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. God bless you. Finally tonight, a boys' choir from London is headed to the United States. The London Oratory Scola Cantorum will perform in California and Utah. The 10-day tour begins tomorrow. Its new album is entitled Sacred Treasured Treasures of Spain. It features music from the Spanish Renaissance. The tour includes stops at three California missions. Some of the songs might have been recognized by the Franciscan missionary, St. Junipero Serra. And that wraps up our newscast for tonight. We thank you for watching. For the entire EWTN News Nightly team, I'm Wyatt Goolsby. We leave you tonight with a look at the dedication of Christ Cathedral in the Diocese of Orange in California. It was broadcast earlier on EWTN. Good night and God bless. <laughs>